Sam. This is Professor Joff Root. I've heard recently about some interesting stories down in Fort Washita. Uh, they're all closed up with the pandemic. I thought we might make use of your press credentials to see if we could finagle a private tour. Give me a call. This is Sam Saxon, along with Professor Joff Root, and you're listening to Tales Unveiled where we travel across Oklahoma for ghost stories, as well as urban legends and local history. As requested by the professor, I did some digging and was able to arrange an interview with the staff at Fort Washita. On my drive there, I dealt with a mix of rains, including some heavy bursts that forced me to drastically reduce my speed. About two and a half hours later, I finally made it. Sonny Hamilton saw my car parked outside the towering metal gate and drove up in a utility vehicle to let me inside. He directed me to the parking lot in front of the visitor center where everyone was waiting. A blanket of fog and light rain somewhat obscured my view of the grounds, but I could see a few historic ruins of barracks and the aforementioned visitor center. I parked in front of the brown stone building with white wood framing and railings. I went inside where, after a temperature check, I met with the rest of the people we would be interviewing. I began to unpack my sound equipment when the professor arrived. He only had his black leather notebook with him this time, but he seemed a bit on edge, constantly looking around. I asked him if he was okay. He said he was fine and that the rain during the drive was unpleasant. With my equipment set, I started our interview session by having everyone state their name and share a little bit about themselves. My name is Kenneth Golden. I'm retired law enforcement, retired military, former sheriff of Bryan County. Uh, My name is Michael Freeland. I uh, work with the museums and historic sites of the Chickasaw Nation. I'm the senior exhibit developer and I've been employed with the Chickasaw Nation for about 15 years. Hi, um, my name is Brianna Teal and I am a historian, an educator, and a historical reenactor. My name is Jim Argo. I am the site manager at Fort Washita. I've been at this site for almost uh, 20 years now. Let's all get started. Uh, Tell us, our listeners, about this place. Uh, A real quick history on the site. Uh, It was established in 1842. After the signing of the Treaty of Dokesville in 1837, the Chickasaw people started moving into their new district. Uh, There was a lot of problems in this area. Uh, There were... uh, Frontiersmen settling in the area that weren't that shouldn't have been here. Uh, there was a lot of different tribes moving through uh, and causing a lot of lawlessness uh, as the Chickasaw people were moving into new homeland. So uh, part of the Treaty of Dokesville was that the federal government would secure the region and maintain the peace as the Chickasaw people moved into the new home. That was the reason Fort Washington was established. Uh, that was in 42. Uh, it, it served its purpose. It, it uh, helped maintain the peace as, as the Chickasaw people f- developed the, the area. Uh, that moved along really well until the war with Mexico in 46, 47, 48. The, the site was used mainly as a mustering point for troops going into Texas to help with that. Uh, 
shortly after that, in 48, when that was over, gold was discovered in California. And this, this caused a lot of growth in the, in the area. A lot of people from the Northeast were moving west. Uh, we were on what's called Marcy's Southern Route to California. So thousands and thousands of people came through here heading into, uh, into Texas and then westward on Marcy's Route into California. Uh, it's a lot of growth and you know, a lot of immigrants coming through, uh, some sick, some passed away here and are buried at the site. Things started to settle down in the mid-1850s. Uh, uh, the, the fort kind of slowed down with, with the, the lack of immigrants. Well, then the Civil War started in 61. In April of 61, Colonel Emory, which was the post commander, abandoned the fort. And uh, shortly thereafter, matter of fact, a couple of days, Confederate troops from Texas moved in and were joined shortly thereafter by the Chickasaw and Choctaw Mounted Rifles. This was the home for those units and a number of Texas units. Uh, troops from here fought all over eastern Oklahoma, as far as Arkansas, even in Missouri. Um, a lot of the wounded from those the battles they were involved in came back here because we had a big, big hospital here. Uh, some survived, some didn't. Um, after the war, most of the buildings here were burned down by Texas Confederates as they were leaving the area and the fort was never reoccupied by federal troops again. Uh, it did set here, it was given back in the 1870s, it was given back to the Chickasaw Nation and it set here just tribal use for the next 30 odd years until the allotment in the, a family by the name of Colbert, the, the Charlie Colbert and Abby Davis Colbert family got the land in the allotment. They kept the property and lived here until the 18, I mean 1962 when the state of Oklahoma acquired it, the Oklahoma Historical Society to be exact. The OHS kept the property until 2017 when the Chickasaw Nation resumed ownership of the property and it's uh, been in the, in the part of the Chickasaw Nation since then. There are three cemeteries on the site, the, uh, the original Post Cemetery, which all of those troops were exhumed uh, when it became private property and moved to the National Cemetery at Fort Gibson uh, there's a Confederate cemetery here as well as a tribal cemetery. Uh, we know of over 80 buildings originally on the site. Uh, we have about 90 acres of what was originally 10 square miles of fort. So if visitors come today, what can they expect to see? Uh, there's a number of ruins uh, through the grounds, you're, you know, where people can walk through with, and with the tour book and explain what the, the buildings were. As well as we have through the year, we have a number of reenactments, Civil War reenactments, uh, Mountain Man rendezvous. Uh, all through the year, we have different, uh, like Fourth of July celebrations, Christmas celebrations, and then each October we have our annual ghost stories, which are always the last week of October on a normal year. With so much varied history, there must be many ghost stories of things lingering. I've heard countless countless stories uh, i've personally been here so long i've heard of, uh, just about everything you can imagine and seen a number of pictures as well so what kind of stories do you have well i will leave that to some of the storytellers with a slight chuckle jim bowed out from the group and turned it over to the storytellers we took a moment to work out some logistics since it was raining outside and the stories were sorted by location we decided to simply pretend like we were on one of the walking ghost tours. So who are some of your spirits here? 
Well, the uh, actually the very first story that we have for you uh, takes place uh, not too far from this very building, uh, probably about 50 yards uh, closest to the, uh, actually the entrance is in the parade grounds of the old fort. Uh, there's actually a flagpole out there that actually marks the middle of the parade grounds and is uh, flanked on the south and the west by the southern barracks and the western barracks. And the western barracks being one of the oldest buildings on the, uh, the fort site. And so, uh, if you actually, uh, if you're actually here uh, within uh, the the old chaplain's office, and you go out to the old military road that sits just outside the door here, and you actually go back down south on the uh, on the road, the uh, the old military road will take you straight, uh, flanking right to the uh, parade grounds. And so, we what we do is we go out there, and on the parade grounds, the uh, very first story. Uh, revolves around a, a young officer who was actually stationed at a fort in Missouri and he was uh, he was set to uh, be married and uh, he had actually uh, proposed uh, to a beautiful young woman named Julia before he was actually uh, set to come down to actually this fort and so uh, he kind of reluctantly he told Julia that um, as soon as he came down here and he established himself and he got his men uh, established at the fort, he would write back to her and send for her, and they would come. She would actually come down to this fort here at Washita, and they would be married. So he rounded up his troops and received his orders at the at the fort in Missouri, and came all the way down to the military road that actually leads into the fort here, and uh, came down that long journey here, and actually uh, rounded his troops up onto that very uh, parade grounds, actually just right outside. And so uh, not too long after he got here and he had uh, gotten his dispatch orders and actually he had talked to the adjutant officer of this very fort and, you know, saying, I've arrived, here are my men, we're, you know, this is our new post. And uh, he said, well, he can actually, you can actually uh, station your men either at the West Barracks or the South Barracks. Actually, this, you can, again, see the ruins outside of it. And so as he established his men, he would actually report to the bachelor's officer's quarters that is actually on the east side. The ruins are on the east side of the uh, parade grounds. And no sooner did he actually cross the threshold into his own quarters, he actually collapsed to the ground and fainted. See what happened to this uh, unfortunate officer is he had uh, contracted a severe, rather severe case of malaria. Now malaria at the time wasn't considered to be deadly, but if it untreated like it was on his ride down here when he did, actually did contract it and not treated, it can be fatal. Well, not, you know, there's not much they could do about it here. They, he had, uh, the inn was actually really near when they actually had woken him up, and they had surrounded him. Uh, they took him to a local hospital and just kind of surrounded him. And uh, just as it was kind of coming to an end, uh, the last words on his lips were, Julia, Julia. Well, they unfortunately, they had to gather his personal effects and rounded everything up and wrote a letter to Julia and sent his personal effects back to her in Missouri. And it was said that sometime uh, shortly after that uh, Julia died of a broken heart. Well, as tragic as an end this is, I think that uh, whenever you hear a story like that, it, oh, okay, well, where's the, where's the haunting aspect of it? And this is where it gets interesting. And this is where we have a lot of uh, people who have actually seen or heard things on the parade ground. See, uh, if you come, if it's, if people are down here, usually is said that if you come down here at the uh, end of March on the night of Halloween, a rider at the head of a, a group of soldiers will be coming riding down the old military road down here toward, down south toward the gate. 
and round up his horses on the parade ground and a young officer will dismount his horse, walk across the parade ground and it's simultaneously about the same time a woman dressed in white will emerge from the West Barracks and they will walk to each other toward the middle of the parade ground and just as they come together to hug, they disappear into the night. Well, that's uh, actually where a lot of, uh, you'll hear from uh, Mr. King Golden later about his personal experience of that and you will actually, uh, there's been others that have uh, experiencing things like during the rendezvous there was a group of people actually at the uh, at the south barracks when it was still a, a habitable uh, building and there were women and children were on the on the lower part kind of sleeping the night and the men were actually up in the uh, the top the top uh, part of it actually sleeping in their bunks and while they were sleeping uh, they actually heard horses kind of galloping on, onto the parade grounds. So like, well, this is really interesting. This is really, really early in the morning, about 2 or 3 o'clock or so. And uh, it's kind of interesting actually seeing that and or hearing, actually hearing it. They heard um, bridles clanging and sabers rattling. And so when they when they looked outside, they, they looked through the windows to look outside and they could see these men riding up on horses. They didn't see anything. They looked and they actually went outside to look in the parade grounds. There was no one there. So this has actually happened more than one instance. So this is, um, but that actually concludes that particular story. A great deal of residual energy. Mm-hmm. What other stories do you have? Well, there's a, there's a number. Um, another one that actually happened with, uh, actually, uh, Jim, Mr. Jim Argo, you heard earlier, this place was actually inhabited uh, by Chickasaws when uh, they were, during removal in the 1870s. And uh, Mr. Charlie Colbert, this was actually his allotted land. And uh, Mr. Colbert, the Colbert family is actually very well known within the Chickasaw Nation. So Mr. Charlie Colbert actually occupied with his family, and there are actually photos of him and his family standing in front of the West Barracks, which he reestablished as a home here. Well, when he had actually, uh, he had actually taken that upon his allotted land and actually turned that into a home for his family, um, the, how, the building itself, since it was a house, he occupied it with him and his extended family and his 25 dogs. So he really loved animals at that time. So. But uh, he, he one night explained of his 25 dogs actually being in the lo- one of the lower levels when they were trying to sleep and the dogs were yelling, like you know, yelping and barking and trying to dig out from uh, underneath one of the doors, all of them at the same time, like they were all after the same thing. Well, that night he actually, um, they actually had gotten out and the next morning he went to go check and all 25 do- of his dogs were missing. He couldn't find a trace of one of them. None of them stayed behind, they were all gone. So he actually went out to look for his, uh, his canines and he couldn't find any of them. So when he went, uh, he actually took his sons and family and they went on an extended day kind of hike to go bring all of his 25 dogs back. So they found them and brought them back to his house. And the very next night, the exact same thing happened again. And uh, he went out to look for them the next day with his family and couldn't find one of them. And every night that this happened, when they were actually going to look to see what the dogs were working on, they couldn't find anything. They looked, and because if you look from where the West Barracks are, you can look for a great deal around it and there was nothing there. And then uh, not soon after, it said that Charlie Colbert took his entire family. I don't exactly know the circumstances of this, but he actually took, this is a lot of land. So it was, it was his thing is he took his entire family and the dogs that he had and left and never gave an explanation as to why he was leaving. Animals certainly know things humans don't. That's very true. Brianna, what do you have for us? Well, um, I would like to start by telling another story that took place in the West Barracks. 
Uh, throughout the year, we have so many visitors come and see us. And one year, there was a reenactment taking place, and the reenactors were staying um, in the South Barracks. And they had on, you know, their uniforms and everything. They were just chit-chatting and having a nice day and watching the visitors walk around the site. And they noticed a lovely young couple. They walked into the West Barracks, and not a few minutes later, this woman comes running out. And she's clearly very upset. Uh, she wasn't yelling or anything. Uh, she was making a lot of signs with her hands. And so the reenactors realized, oh, th this woman is deaf. Um, and so her husband comes out, and, and he's signing back to her. And, and it seems as though um, they're, they're just frantically, they're, they're almost arguing through sign language. Uh, this gentleman then goes over to the South Barracks, and he asks the reenactors if he could possibly question them over something that happened. And he explains, my wife is deaf. Um, she's been deaf since birth. She's never heard anything. And um, she got really upset. And she immediately said to me in sign language, the voices, the voices, can't you hear them? So she was, she clearly experienced something she never thought in her wildest dreams would happen to her. And, and there's no explanation for that. So we see phantoms and voices. Any items that seem to have residual energy? Um, actually, yes. Uh, a great example of that is in our blacksmith shop. And we use that throughout the year during our events. We, we have a blacksmith who, who comes and does a lot of demonstrations for us. And he makes his own things and all of his tools and, and things are in the blacksmith shop. And uh, there's no electricity in there, obviously. We have lanterns. Well, it, it also has a dirt floor. You don't exactly want a wood floor in a blacksmith shop. That would be exceedingly dangerous. So it's a dirt floor um, with lanterns. And there's one lantern that always seems to end up on the ground. Doesn't... Is this a historical lantern or something new? Um, it... It's just a, a lantern that's been hanging up there possibly since the OHS took over the site. Um, so it's just just added light, added ambiance <laughs> whenever the blacksmith is working and um, it ends up on the floor. No one can explain and it. And it's not just on the floor, you know, with the, with the glass broken or anything like that. It's almost like it's been taken apart hmm. and it's all in individual pieces just laying on the floor. And you would think, well, where the footsteps? Who who knocked it down? Who took it down? Who did this? There are no footsteps. What if it was an animal? Well, surely you would see little tiny footprints if it was a raccoon or a possum or something. There's there's none of that. And, and they have um, tested out their theories by sweeping the floor, making the dirt look all nice and even and everything. Still no footsteps, but the lantern is all taken apart and it's laying on the ground. There's actually a corresponding uh, story to that last year when Bree, myself, and a couple of other storytellers, we were actually, it was raining so hard, we actually had to stay in the blacksmith shop the corresponding nights to be able to tell any of the stories because that was the only way we could do it because the grounds were so muddy, we couldn't really walk to them a lot of the places we were. So we were actually standing and sitting in there waiting for the groups to show up. And uh, we had a group of two, we had a small little group, we had two people uh, with us, if you remember that, Brie. We, mm -hmm. uh, we had two people sitting in there and we were telling them 
uh, literally a story. I think we were actually on the blacksmith shop story, mm -hmm. and right about the time we heard that, the there's uh, two sets of heavy doors on on uh, the east and west side of the blacksmith shop building. You really have to kind of pull them because the dirt the dirt floor is mm -hmm. actually up in some places, so you kind of have to pull and them really hard. They're exceedingly heavy. I mean, it's not a screen door. It's they're exceedingly heavy. Well, the the interesting part about that actually, Bree was actually I think standing over by one of the doors, and the door swung open probably about five or six inches. And the thing is, it came in toward us, not out. Yeah. So, and the thing is, again, the dirt is up so raised, you really have to lean into it to push it open. And so I was looking over at Bree, and right as we were like, we laughed about part of the story, and then the, that door opened about six inches, and I'm looking over there at Bree, and then Bree's looking at me. And they're laughing, and I'm like, "This is not a joke. We didn't, we didn't do anything." Yeah, we don't, the we visitors, don't the visitors think, "Is this part of the show? You know, is this something that y'all do on purpose?" No, absolutely not. We're we're not a haunted house. We're not a haunted hayride. Just they're, haunted. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it was, and well, it followed up to that. We 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 the first thing we try and do is try and like, okay, well, it may have been someone outside, or it may have been the wind. The wind wasn't blowing. Mm -hmm. It was just raining. It was all it was doing. So yeah. the, the door swung about six inches, and right about as the time we kind of started talking about, it's like you could have timed it. Someone walked a couple feet and then banged like really hard, like banged on one of the uh, the shutters for one of the windows. And that really kind of like, okay, there's, and we open the door, there's nobody out mm -hmm. there. I went out and checked. I'm looking around because I'm thinking, I, just as a joke, I thought maybe one of the other volunteers was playing a prank on us. I thought, well, maybe my boyfriend is out there playing a prank on us. No, no such thing. It, <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, when you see a door swing open and it does the horror movie creaking sound <laughs> as it does so, you're, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. You get chills. I'm going to just interject for a minute. Uh, talking about the lamps in the blacksmith shop. Yes. Uh, the lamps are actually, uh, the bottom part, the fuel part, is a long container, just about 10 inches long and about 4 inches around. And in the center of it is the globe and your, and your wick and stuff. And this is all on, on heavy cord that goes over. So it's actually hanging up in the air and then they're tied off somewhere. So they're not just like sitting on a shelf or something. And so when these lamps are lowered, you, un you undo them and you let them down and you tie it back and then you, it's where you can operate on it, fill it up and so forth. And that's how they would find these. They would find it completely on the ground, completely disassembled with the wick top screwed out and the, and the globe off. And so they, they, would, they took a rake from the office went down, raked the floor in there so that any tracks would show up, and then brought the rake back so there wasn't any chance that somebody would rake over it unless they, you know, had the key and had the rake and everything to go back. So that's, and, and, and Bree was right, that, that they would find that more than once. And, uh, and that was, that, that's quite interesting. There was actually another part there that is not just uh, essentially the globe being taken apart in the lanterns, there's actually anvils, and like, it's an actual workable blacksmith shop down there, it's got mm -hmm. the billows and everything else, calipers, and the one of the interesting things is that uh, people have, the, there's been uh, uh, people that have actually noticed that the lights are actually on there at some time during the night, and the anvil actually being struck.
And the thing is, this is this this site is secured. You can't really you can't get into any of these places that are open like that unless mm-hmm. you have a key to get in for one, or you break a window, or the anvil rotates, or the anvil rotates. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. They've they've they people have come over here and complained of a of a hammer striking the anvil at night, and they came over here and they looked, and the lights were off, and there's nobody in there. And then like as soon as they leave, it would start this amble started getting struck again so it's just thing really interesting small little things like that but it's definitely significant i think well one of the uh, one of the other stories that we have is actually if you go down the hill from the blacksmith shop and you'll actually go down to a um, a refitted corral down there it goes past that down to what would be the ruins of the original corral or the stables actually down there. Um, you'll actually see, you'll actually walk down there and it's a raised part of the land and you can actually see this big rectangular uh, rock formation down there, which would have been the old stables of where this next story actually takes place. See what happened? There was a, there was a, oh, quite a few soldiers that had been through here and uh, one in particular was an Irish soldier. And uh, this actually, uh, it actually starts a little bit further back than that. We'll see, there was a, there was uh, an officer here uh, at the fort, uh, and him and uh, his. Uh, normally, how it would happen with officers, their families could actually stay here too. And he was uh, married at the time, and um, him and his wife. Well, I wouldn't say that they had necessarily a happy marriage, uh, but uh, um, yeah, more unfaithful, I suppose. But uh, that being said. Um, this particular officer didn't really kind of trust what was going on, so he asked the uh, the commanding officer or the CO of the fort to actually have a transfer out, so that kind of behavior wouldn't continue. And so what happened is that uh, he had gone to his commanding officer. He says, "Okay, well, I need you to go out and ride uh, a patrol, and then when you get back, I'll do what I can to fill out your order so you can transfer." He said, "Okay." He went out with his uh, he went out with the dispatch of his soldiers and they went out on patrol. But about halfway uh, getting to where they were going on the patrol, he didn't have such a good feeling. So he whipped his horse around and actually uh, rode back hard to the to the fort here and uh, came back to his uh, quarters. And um, the situation that he found wasn't wasn't so good, uh, to say the least. And so uh, what he did is uh, the man that was actually in uh, his quarters, he whipped out what's called a wrist breaker saber, which is a very, very long curved blade, uh, specially used for cavalry. And uh, he pulled the sword and lopped off the man's head. And then he proceeded to take the man's head and walked all the way down near past the bridge, past the gate of Government Springs down here, and took it down to the spring and threw his head into the spring well. Uh, flash forward, who knows how long forward after that, after that whole incident happened, and uh, there's an Irish soldier actually down there uh, taking care and watering the horses at the stables down there near the, where the ruins are that, uh, that you can actually see. And for uh, a little while, he time went on for a little bit, and he actually realized that he had to water the horses. So he took a, took a bucket with him and walked down to the springs down the hill, and when he got down to the springs, he leaned over into the springs and dipped the bucket in, only to find a head bobbing in the water, and it would roll up, and the eyes stood, stared at his face. So, uh, this being rather shocking to him and scary, he dropped his bucket and ran all the way up from the springs, all the way back up the hill, up to where about where we are, to the commanding officer's quarters, burst in and says, Sir, sir, I have to talk to you. I saw this, and he explained the situation. 
Well, the commanding officer kind of chuckled at it, and it was just the ratings of a, a drunk Irishman, apparently. And that, you know, just you can't do that. That you you're supposed to ask permission before you come talking to a commanding officer. It's like leave, you know, go about your business, go back, go back to your duties, and I'll just blow this off. But uh, word to the wise: don't ever do that again, or we're gonna have a problem. Well, he's rather reluctant. He went all the way back down to. Uh, down to his post at the stables and went right back down to the hill to take care of the horses only to find out that he left his bucket at the springs and those horses still needed water. So after he gathered up a little bit of his courage he decided to go back down to the springs again so went all the way down the hill reluctantly went to the springs to get his bucket leaned in to get more water only to find the head rolled up and staring him in the face. This time he dropped the bucket, ran back all the way back up the hill, and did exactly what his commanding officer told him not to do. He barged into the office, and says, "Sir, sir, you you have to, you have to see this. You 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 just have to hear what I have to say." He just his voice was shaking and trembling, and just saying that this is what I saw. This is slamming his hands down. That's it. Because you come in here one more time, you're going to you're going to the go to the guard post where we'll arrest you, and you'll be court-martialed. Get out of this office. Don't come in here again and sober up. And that was that. And reluctantly, that Irishman, he he didn't have any choice. He walked right back down the stables and didn't know what to do. When they said, it was said that uh, sometime shortly after that, that a gunshot rang out uh, across across the fort. Now, when a gunshot is uh, shot at a fort, there's only one of two things. It's either something's really really bad happened you can't really fire a gun on a fort without permission or there's any some kind of emergency like you're under attack well all these soldiers gathered rifles and actually came back down the hill to the stables and come to find out there was the irish soldier laying on the ground with a gunshot to his head so all of that being said about this unfortunate uh, gentleman losing his head um, in a not so great incident. Uh, you have to remember that there was a young lady involved as well. Well, her spirit, known as Aunt Jane, affectionately or infamously known as Aunt Jane, uh, she is said to wander the grounds. And in October of 1934, there was an illustration of her in the Daily Oklahoman. And it's pretty spooky if you ever have a chance to look at it. Um, she looks a bit grizzled. She looks a bit nasty. And, you know, she's got a bonnet on and a dress and everything. And it, it's the way that people have described seeing her is she, she doesn't look like a lovely young lady anymore. She looks like something, something out of a horror film. I was blown away by the wealth of stories, but they assured me they were only getting started. Tune in for part two in our next episode. Stay tuned next week for part two of our interview session at Fort Washita. If you love what we're doing and want to help us, please support us on Patreon. Learn more at talesunveiled.com. Until next time, happy adventures! Happy adventures!